All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Crystal Kyle and friends. Uh, obviously, Crystal and I are not in studio. It's currently a little bit of construction going on in there. So we're, uh, you know, in random places, seemingly. Well, I'm in one of my studios here. You yes. are in a locker I'm room. I'm in what appears to be a locker room, but yes. it's actually, anyway, it's part of the building where the studio is located. It's just not the studio because as people who watch Breaking Points know, because we've been talking about it relentlessly, we're building a new set. It's being installed right now. We use the same space for Crystal Kyle and friends. So anyway, Correct. there you go. That's where we yeah. are. So anyway, today we're going to be talking to FD Signifier. Really looking forward to that. Dude yeah. is awesome. I love watching his videos. Um, we want to talk about the phenomenon of black conservatism and dive into the way he views it, the different branches of it, because it's not just, you know, the Alan Keyes types or Herman Cain or Tim Scott or whatever. There's a, he, The way he views it is very interesting. He views like Jay-Z, for example, rapper as a black conservative because he's a black capitalist. I mean, one of the lines in the famous Jay-Z song is like, I feel like a black Republican with the money I got coming in. And so it's like he sort of breaks it down into these different categories and the role they play in limiting the political imagination. So that should be an interesting conversation. Really looking forward to that. Uh, but before we do get to that, uh, there's a couple things that I thought worthy of discussion here, Crystal. So I don't I'm sure you saw this, but we have Chris Christie is apparently going to launch his presidential campaign in the coming uh, few days or the coming week. Uh, and Mike Pence as well is going to launch his presidential campaign. So um, if you were fearing that there wouldn't be enough hilarious stuff to mock and laugh at yeah. o- over this election season, well, now we have a virtual no guarantee. Worries. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Christie. Okay, so I'll start with Chris Christie. So he signaled. Big fan. You're a big fan. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) If you will recall, he came to prominence in the Republican Party because he would do these like town halls and would like bully teachers. And he had this whole like anti teacher union thing that he really rode to prominence. 2012, he decides to take a pass on running for president. He really shouldn't have. I've always thought, in terms of just sheer political talent, I actually think Chris Christie is very politically talented. He genuinely nuked and destroyed Marco Rubio mm-hmm. in 2016. And a little while back, there was reporting, and he may he and his aides may have even said this publicly, that if he were to get into the race, the goal would be to do to Trump what he did to Marco. Now, there's a number of problems with that theory. Chief among them, I don't think Chris Christie doesn't have a lot of credibility with the Republican base, because once you turn against Daddy Trump, that's it for the Republican base. Um, And number two, I mean, Trump is just way more formidable um, than Marco Rubio ever was. And Trump is probably not even going to debate. So it's not like you're even even ever likely to have that head to head moment where you can humiliate him live in real time. You're probably never going to have that. I think the biggest impact of or the biggest takeaway from Chris Christie and Mike Pence and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and all these other people getting into the race is like, this is just all really bad for Ron DeSantis. He needs to coalesce all of the, you know, I won't even call him anti-Trump, but anybody in the Republican Party who would be persuadable to move off Trump, he needs all of those people. And so if Chris Christie's taken two points and Mike Pence could take, especially in some of the early states, he could take up to, you know, five to 10 points. That's all coming out of DeSantis. That's not coming off of Trump. So to me, that's sort of the big takeaway from both of these guys getting in the race. So first of all, you need a law that these candidates have to debate. I'm sick Agreed. of this. I'm yeah. sick of their like petty prima donna, like, you know, I, I need to have it my way or the highway. I'm not going to do that because what do I get out of it? It's like, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the country. You want to be the most powerful person in the entire country and in the entire world. 
I'm not interested in your feelings or your thoughts on it. This is par for the course. This is the way it works. Get your ass on that stage and debate. We absolutely need a law. And by the way, this is something, maybe I'm naive, but this is something where, in theory, you should be able to get a bipartisan strong majority on this if they were to vote on it. Because it's just the right thing to do. Now, maybe not, because, of course, the Democrats are going to want to protect Joe Biden. They don't want him having to debate Marianne Williamson and RFK. But look, it should be something that's a no-brainer. So that's point number one. Point number two, to your kamikaze argument about Chris Christie, it is absolutely correct. All the reporting on this is clear. Uh, Christie had an interesting comment the other week. He said, I'm not a paid assassin, which made me go, wait, nobody was accusing you of being paid to do this. But now I'm thinking, oh, are you being paid to do this? Are you being paid by wealthy donors to try <laughs> to be just, a kamikaze against Trump? He's an, he's an unpaid assassin. <laughs> but I, I think he might actually be paid because it was a weird denial when nobody was accusing him of being paid. It's like, I think he might actually be being paid to be a Trump assassin. But he is, to your point, he was a political force. There was a time when everybody was afraid 2012, him against Obama, people were afraid that Chris Christie would win. When Chris Christie finally ran in 2016, I sincerely believe that his staffers reeled him in way too much, and they tried to tell him, you have to be kinder, you have to be nicer, you have to be more sympathetic, you have to be more like a politician, you can't just go around yelling at people. And you know what? Wrong. You needed to go around yelling at people. That was your whole appeal in the first place, this like tough, straight shooter kind of guy, even though I don't agree with the guy on anything. And his best moment in the campaign, as you alluded to, was when he destroyed Marco Rubio. That was already so late in the game when he knew he couldn't win. And he was acting as an assassin for Donald Trump at that time. And there was chatter behind the scenes that Trump was supposed to pick him for VP. Christie was under the assumption he would be picked for VP. Then, of course, Trump stabbed Christie in the back because Christie locked up Jared Kushner's dad when he was a prosecutor. And so he got stabbed in the back. And this is one of the main reasons why... Uh, Christie also has a personal beef with Donald Trump. That's where a lot of this stuff stems from. So now he wants to be that assassin. He wants to be no holds barred. But to your point, if there's no debate, it's like, you know, you you don't have the ability. You don't have the space to do it. Right. Um, Now, on Mike Pence, I mean, what is there to say? Dude, cuck city. Wrap it up. What are you doing? It's a wrap. DeSantis is already in. Trump is already in. You got, you know, the D-listers, the Nikki Haley's, the Tim Scott's. Like, yeah, uh, Pence was coming in third in every single poll. What am I supposed to make of that? Congrats. You got 11% in the polls and there's 47 different candidates running and the main guy has a stranglehold on the party. What are you going to do? You're going to, your whole campaign is going to be like, I think abortion should be banned from the second you're done having sex. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Good luck. Good luck That's with that, bro. Plan, good luck. Much. <laughs> yeah. So I can't wait for Trump to unleash on Pence because that'll be fun because there was whispers behind the scenes that when he was his VP, Trump would casually say things in conversation in the Oval Office with Pence like, Look at this guy over here. He's crazy. He wants to kill all the gays. This one. Incredible. (laughs) Yeah, that will be that will be an interesting dynamic. I mean, with Mike Pence, he's sort of like in this no man's land of making no one, nobody happy because he, of course, like was the chief sycophant and carried Trump's water for four years. And then January 6th, people are literally running around the Capitol saying they want to hang him. He can barely be bothered even after that, like the most tepid criticism of a man who legitimately like tried to get him killed. I disagree. But even that, even that very tepid criticism and the fact that he didn't back up Trump with stop the steal means that a lot of the Republican base isn't down for him anymore, but he hasn't done enough to become like a, you know, Liz Cheney style liberal resistance icon. So he's kind of in this in between between space. I do think he has a genuine, like small constituency uh, among the evangelical right. 
That's always been his bread and butter. That's why he got picked for the ticket in the first place. There is a larger than average contingent of that group and well-organized in Iowa where he is supposedly staking his claim. None of this is to say, like, I definitely don't think he has any shot to win. But could he get five, ten percentage points, especially in Iowa, when DeSantis's whole play is to pull the Obama, like, let me win early states and prove my strength and then hope that a bunch of people flip after that? That's DeSantis's play. So if you have someone like Pence and a bunch of other folks that are eating into your possibilities in Iowa, I think that's a problem for DeSantis, primarily. Uh, I'm going to say something controversial. I think Mike Pence can win Iowa. I don't know that I would go that far, but you never know. I don't think he has much of a chance in the entire election. I definitely think he can win Iowa. And here's my reasoning. Do you know who won Iowa in recent elections for the Republicans who won the state of Iowa? Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee. Correct. What do all three of them have in common? Evangelical, right? They were the most religious zealots of all of them. So yeah. I actually think he has a chance in Iowa, but I don't think he has a chance for the you know entire campaign. But yeah. anyway, it'll be interesting. I can't wait for Trump to like break all these guys' spines and chug their spinal fluid. It's going to be fun. Yeah. yeah, and if he does win Iowa, like that's game over for DeSantis. There is no plan B if DeSantis mm. doesn't win Iowa. Um, and then in New Hampshire, you know, New Hampshire second and Chris Sununu, who is the governor of that state and who no one else has ever heard of, but is very popular within New Hampshire. He's also thinking about running and he would, he would very like, I mean, it's a very good possibility. He would win the state of New Hampshire. Chris and so then, yeah, then you're just like, all right, DeSantis, what's your plan from here? So anyway, I think it's all, I think this is all bad signs for DeSantis shows he's a relatively weak candidate or at least perceived as such because he hasn't been able to, um, scare anybody out of the race whatsoever. All right. Tell me about the trouble in paradise. So I, I'm used oh, to this right wing infighting. There's, there's been a lot going on between the Trump people versus the DeSantis people, the Stephen Crowders versus the Ben Shapiro's. But what yeah. I'm not used to, what I'm not used to is DeSantis people on DeSantis people violence. And that's what we're seeing here. So apparently Elon oh, Musk and the Daily Wire now have a, a beef going on. Explain this for me. Okay, so this is from Jeremy Boring, who is like the CEO of the Daily Wire. You'll recall, yep. Daily Wire just announced that they're going to post. They're going to post all their shows on Twitter. Twitter is supposedly going to be doing this long form video. Tucker is taking his show there. I mean, after the whole Twitter Spaces debacle with Ron DeSantis, I don't think anyone should have any confidence <laughs> that they can post anything. But anyway, put that aside. So they have this new partnership. So today, um, Jeremy Boring, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of The Daily Wire, tweeted, Twitter canceled a deal with uh, The Daily Wire to premiere What is a Woman for free on the platform because of two instances of misgendering. I'm not kidding. Here's what happened. He goes into, I'll read a little bit more of this. One year ago, there's 16 parts of this. We won't do all of it, but I'll get a, a little bit of it here. One year ago today, we released What is a Woman to celebrate the occasion and expand the movie's already enormous impact, we decided to give it away for free for 24 hours on Twitter. With Twitter's recent commitments to free speech, we thought it'd be the perfect place to distribute the film and drive the conversation forward. Twitter responded with enthusiasm and offered us the opportunity to buy a package to host the movie on a dedicated event page and to promote the event to every Twitter user over the first 10 hours. We accepted and signed an agreement after we signed Twitter, asked to see the film to better understand what parts may, quote, trigger users so they could better prepare their response. They said they were still all hands on deck for launch, so we sent them a screener. 
After reviewing the film, though, Twitter let us know not only could we no longer purchase the package they offered, they would no longer provide us any support and would actually limit the reach of the film and label it as hateful conduct because of misgendering. One of the funnier parts of this uh, thread to Kyle, and I see this, I see this with a lot of like conservatives and libertarians when they're upset about being censored is they'll go through like they're very upset about it and they're making the argument against it, et cetera, et cetera. But they have to add in the com- caveat caveat of like, of course, it's a private company and the CEO can do whatever yeah, he wants. Uh, and it's cook, like, All right. Cooked. You just totally cooked yourself. In Massively your cooked. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's got it in here. He's got his like, to be sure, Twitter could do what it wants, but we're just sad about it. <laughs> so, so let me ask you, has Elon responded yet? As of the recording look- of our segment right now. Yeah, I was looking. I, it doesn't look like he has responded yet. Libs of TikTok responded with wow in a like shocked face and tagged Elon Musk. But I haven't. And he's interacted with Libs of TikTok a bunch. But I don't see that Elon himself has responded yet. Okay. So can you click on uh, Elon's thing just to make sure? But, but So let me give you my theory on this. And then I'm curious your response okay. to it as you look mm-hmm. for whether or not Elon has responded yet. Yes. So my guess is the following. Either this is a cover story because they can't do it logistically. They don't have the necessary infrastructure to actually do this yet. You know, and think about it. There's a very strict date on the one year anniversary of what is a woman. And so to actually run it on the one year anniversary, I don't know if they probably need it up and running very quickly. They probably didn't like, you know, have the time to work up to it and and make it function. And it's very difficult infrastructure to build anyway. So either number one, this is a cover because they can't do it logistically, or number two, this was a decision that was made without Elon's approval, and Elon is going to frantically jump in now and override this and be like, no, no, uh, totally, we're going to run it, and uh, I agree with the Daily Wire. I think it's one of those two things. I think that may well happen, the Elon jumping in thing, because, I mean, even the extent, and I checked, he hasn't replied, the last person he, like, really engaged with was Matt Iglesias, that was a fun exchange, too, but, um, I could see him, the fact he hasn't replied indicates to me maybe he is calculating how to handle this situation. Personally, I think it's very possible this decision was made without his input. And for the same reason that all the like, you know, all the platforms have very similar content moderation policies, it's not geared towards anything other than like what they think advertisers are going to be cool with. You have a new CEO there who comes directly from the advertising world and was brought in explicitly because Twitter is getting crushed yeah. with advertisers, yep. revenue. It's worth down 80%. Third. It's down it's 80%. A, yeah. It's worth a third of what, what Elon bought it for. I mean, it's a yep. financial catastrophe. And so her whole thing is like, I know what the advertisers are going to be comfortable with. I know how to court them. I know how to bring them back. And so this could be part of, part of that whole thing but i mean obviously like it's it's very amusing to watch the right wing yeah. fall out of love here with elon musk in real time and realize that you know he will disappoint them and everyone else on every level listen <laughs> elon's in a no-win situation because you could either please the advertisers get more ad money flowing or you can please your rabid right wing base you cannot have it both ways yeah. you just can't have it both ways the previous twitter management though i had many problems with them they were navigating this same issue. And this is the problem with leadership, especially if you're, you know, the head of Twitter, the head of a big social media company. 
oftentimes you find yourself in a pickle where there is no black and white answers. There's nothing but gray area. And Elon Musk is the king of going out there and pretending like every issue is black and white and then realizing getting smacked across the face with a fish and realizing like, oh, this is not it's not what I thought it was. It's like how we posture free speech absolutism. That's what I am. I'm a free speech absolutist. Oh, did the. Uh, the leader of India tell me that I need to ban their opposition? Did the leader of Turkey tell me that I need to ban their opposition? Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. This is stuff that the previous Twitter management was like, fuck off, we're not doing that. But Elon's like, oh, if you tell me you'll limit my reach to this market, well, then okay. And then he's out there on Twitter defending his decision as if it's like, well, what would you have done? What would you have done? Because, you know, it was either do this or, or get it banned for the rest of the people in India. What am I supposed to do? Like, he acted like, well, I obviously made the right decision. Okay, but then don't do all your peacocking about how you're the big free speech guy, because this is that's decidedly it. the opposite of that. That's that's it, exactly. And in fact, yeah, he's been more repressive in terms of his overall policies. He's been right. way more responsive to these, you know, authoritarian governments looking for censorship. The whole nexus of supposed concern among conservatives is, like, government power along with social media power, which, by the way, is a legitimate concern. But you actually have to be have some consistent principle about it. I mean, look, I've said for, with Elon from the beginning, no billionaire, even a competent, well-intentioned one is going to solve your issue of you can if it's if these communication spaces are important for like the infrastructure of your democracy, they shouldn't be left up to the whims of a capitalist market. There should be democratic accountability and oversight over them so that we can all grapple with what are genuinely difficult questions about what's allowed and what's not allowed and how you handle things that aren't allowed and bans and all, all of that stuff is complicated to sort through. It is. You can't leave it in the hands of any one billionaire, a good one, a bad one, an in-between one, a right-wing one, a left-wing one, whatever. This is just never going to be a solution to the problem that we're facing. Correct. There shouldn't be billionaires. There, I said it. There you go. Indeed. All right. Excited to get to our guest today, FD Signifier, who does fantastic content on YouTube. And um, in particular, some of his latest videos were about Black conservatism. He did a deep dive both into current figures and also sort of the like historical arc. Um, so we wanted to talk about modern American politics in the context of what he has been thinking about. So let's get to it. FD Signifier, great to have you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So we were just talking some about uh, Mike Pence and Chris Christie's political campaigns, presidential campaigns, just getting set to launch. And we've been watching a lot of your content about um, black conservatism. So I thought it'd be really interesting to hear, to start with here a little bit about Tim Scott, how you view his presidential campaign, the pitch that he's making and how it sort of fits into that broader arc of black conservative thought. Yeah. So I I released two videos, probably about a two and a half hours worth of content. And the goal of of it was kind of multiple. The first goal was to kind of address the, the, you know, mythology, I'm sorry, the mythology around black conservatism. I got got those air quotes in the wrong spot, (laughs) Um, which is like every election cycle since uh, probably Obama's second term and definitely going into Trump, there's all this news media coverage that's like, well, will black Americans vote Republican? And they interview 75 black Republicans with screw. How, how much can I curse? As much as you would like. Okay. <laughs> they, they interview 75 black Republicans with fucked up hair. And all of them say the exact same thing about how black Americans are not a monolith. And, 
you know, all these different like, you know, kind of talking points that you hear in black conservative circles. And there's all this coverage of this very small, very niche community. And there's never actual conversation around where black people are actually politically and what black people are looking for politically. And so the the goal was to kind of like excise that from the conversation and put a, a new focus on what black people have been historically politically, which is really further left than the Democratic Party and, you know, get into what real black conservatism looks like. And it's not Tim Scott. Tim Scott is going to be I don't know what his, you know, I don't know a ton about Tim Scott, but if he, he's a he's a black Republican, he's been around for a while. I believe he's a nepotism guy uh, where he had a lot of people above him, uh, family members that were in government before him. And he's not going to really move the needle. The needle has not moved for, you know, quote unquote, black conservatives or black Republicans for 50, 60 years now. Um, it'll be a marginal thing where he maybe can pull in a handful of black folks that may not have voted Republican before. But what it's going to come down to is, you know, whether or not Democrats can muster candidates that excite black people, which I haven't seen it. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but, you know. Overall, I just am just bracing myself for how annoying these stories are going to be because <laughs> I know they're not going to stop. So my theory on Tim Scott running is that, you know, I feel like he knows that he's not going to win the Republican nomination. Everybody not named Donald Trump and maybe Ron DeSantis pretty much knows they're not going to win the nomination. So I get the sense that he's sort of running to up his name recognition and hope to get a VP pick from Donald Trump because Trump actually tweeted like a congratulations and a thank you when mm. Tim Scott decided to run, which I found really interesting because everybody else he just like lashes out at. And my theory on that, and tell me what you think of this, is that I think Republicans are now trying to get in on like the trick of identity politics to be like, you can't call us racist. You can't call us fascist. Look, I just picked Tim Scott, a black guy for my VP. Yeah, that's not new, though. Like they right. like um, the first for, for, in my, uh, you know, political in my like time of being politically aware. I remember they did the same thing after Obama was elected with uh, what's the brother's name? Herman oh, Cain, Ben not, Carson. No, no, no. It, he was over. This is before all of them. He was over. He became the RNC chair. Oh, um, oh, 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 Michael, Michael Steele. Steele. Michael Steele. Steele. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this isn't new. They've they've done this. They've done this forever. This is this is MLK. Um, that's that going back to my video. Like when Reagan got elected, before Reagan got elected, um, uh, people, multiple coalitions of mostly black uh, political actors have been trying to get MLK to get a national holiday for decades. And then when Reagan got elected, that seemed like an easy layup win to pull in a handful more of black centrist moderates and possibly Republicans to say, hey, we gave you our MLK, uh, MLK holiday. And in doing so, they completely defamed MLK's legacy. Um, so like this is a move that is older than me. Um, and it is it is one that does not work. <laughs> it does not. It It is it, it. It really shows, you know, the uh, uh, what's the word I want to use here? The abject incompetence and lack of seriousness on the American right and right wing in general in terms of like uh, going beyond identity politics. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not even doing identity politics right. You know what I'm saying? Because they're going to trot out a handful of black people. Those black people are all going to look and sound the same. And they're going to give a pitch that is 
you know, it will get TV time because there's also the complicitness of, of, you know, our media entities running with this story because it makes for, you know, watching, watching and views. But the reality is they're not going to present policies and anything like tangible to black communities that make them care about their agenda. And black people are not stupid, you know, so we're not a monolith, but we all kind of know what this looks like. And so Tim Scott might get that. that That's a good theory that I hadn't thought about. He might be Trump's uh, VP and I'm sure it'll make for some interesting TV moments. But, you know, Herschel Walker was just running here in Georgia uh, last, um, you know, this past uh, election cycle. We've seen this multiple yeah. times. It's just a, it's a, it, the only thing this does, this does more for them to their base as checking off the box of nobody can call us racist. Right. Than it actually does for black voters and black citizens who are engaged in electoral politics. It, it will have minimal sway over them. On the identity politics piece, I thought it was hilarious in uh, Nikki Haley's speech which was mostly all about her bio and, you know, her background and immigrant story and all of this. And then she throws in there a line of like, of course we don't do identity politics. And it's like, lady, that's like a hundred percent of what you're doing here. But I'm curious, FD, what, what are the limits of that within the Republican party? Like, can you imagine a scenario where that was enough? Look, Trump is most likely going to be the Republican nominee, but imagine a world where Trump isn't there. DeSantis isn't there. Tim Scott has a real shot. Is there an upper limit to how far that can take you in the Republican base where it's like, we like that you're there. We're going to pretend like we're going to vote for you. But at the end of the day, we're going to you know, go with someone that we feel is our cultural kin. Or do you think that it's enough uh, sucker to them to feel like, oh, see, this proves that we're not racist, that it actually could be a viable strategy to win a presidential nomination? <sighs> that's a that's an interesting question, because we're talking about excluding you know, uh, the black electorate, the, you know, uh, the liberal Democrat electorate, et cetera, just saying if we're just pulling on Republicans, I actually think it's possible because the, from, from, from my understanding, and, you know, I don't, I'm not truly engaged in electoral politics a lot. <clears throat> you can't tell, <clears throat> but I come in and out. And one thing, one story that I don't think is talked about enough is that where Trump lost last year was with uh, uh, inner inner city white voters, uh, suburban white voters, uh, mostly white men. Um, Same thing for uh, for uh, here in Georgia with Herschel Walker, like black people tend to show up exactly as they always show up. Um, Everybody else tends to it's, it's it really came down to the fact that moderate uh, uh, voters in Georgia were just not okay with Herschel Walker. Like, even if they would never want a Democrat to run anything in Georgia, they were not going to vote for Herschel Walker. Um, so if you had a Tim Scott, um, who was clearly indicating that he was aligned to a Republican agenda and was not going to rock the boat on race issues or actually make tangible changes around race. His, if his changes, if his way to address racism was going to be more police and, you know, tough on crime policies and cutting welfare programs, if he's going to toe the exact Republican line, I honestly think it would be relatively viable just based on but it wouldn't be based on black voters. It'd be based on those moderate white voters, those suburban whites, those inner city whites that 
are, you know, don't want, you know, the left to go too far or whatever. And they see Tim Scott in the same way that uh, the, the family from Get Out might see him. You know, there's there's a there's a fetishization of 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 black, uh, you know, uh, political, academic, whatever uh, products. And so they get a they get a little buzz from saying, yeah, I supported Tim Scott. I supported Obama. Um, black people are going to kind of see the okie doke for what it is. And we're going to vote how we're going to vote for the whole time. But yeah, if he doesn't rock the boat, like Michael Steele, going back to Michael Steele, he rocked the boat and they got him out of there. Like as soon as he started trying to make incremental changes around race in the Republican party, they took him off the board. And so as long as they don't do that, I, I think it's quite possible. Interesting. So I, I want to get to your theory. I think you lay out a really interesting theory on black conservatism in your videos on this. Uh, you break it down into three categories, the distraction, the double agent, and the black capitalist. So I want to touch on that in a second. But before we do that, let's first go to like the easier targets, because I'm curious your thoughts on them. Uh, you know, the Candace Owens types, for example. I mean, I, I know I've heard you make the argument. She's mostly playing to a white audience like her mm. majority is overwhelmingly white, obviously overwhelmingly conservative. So when you look at those like easy targets, do you view it as simple, like a total grift or does Candace Owens really believe what she's saying? Like, how do you view them in the whole landscape? There, there's probably like a bell curve. You know, mm -hmm. I think Candace is mostly grift. Um, uh, I don't think Jesse Lee Peterson is a real person. I'm not unconvinced that he's uh, an A.I. Uh <laughs> And then you have like diehards, like maybe Sal, uh, Clarence Thomas and other figures. So there's like a, there's a bell curve. <clears throat> there, there is a, a, uh, a black experience, um, that, you know, it, it, it starts being, it starts, it has to start having to become intersectional. So there is a, an experience of blackness where, you, you know, engage with the way we see poor people. Like there's that, it's, it's not just about race. It's also about like our, uh, capitalistically ingrained hatred of poor people as lazy and unworthy of help and support. And so when you grow up in certain environments, this is Ben Carson, uh, Clarence Thomas, you know, people who that grew up extremely poor that, you know, pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. And once they get there, they develop a belief system that says that these people that aren't trying hard enough don't deserve any help. That help is actually hurting them in the long run, yada, yada, yada. So there is some genuine um, sentiment of for that, not just among black conservatives, but among black liberals, Democrats, black people that persistently move further left in their politics. That sentiment is not un it's still real there. The difference, the, the gap becomes how much racism do you want in your day to day life? And we're not talking about like the important structural systemic racism. We're talking about people genuinely, genuinely being disrespectful to your face, which is something that I know Candace Owens has dealt with. Uh, Clarence Thomas has dealt with, you know, uh, Jess Lee Peterson. That's half of his shtick is I'm just going to be all the things that, you know, white people think of me in the first place and just make it my whole thing. And so once we start getting there, we're getting out of like a genuine um, conflict of, of political ideology into if I use the phrase that you all need not use or laugh at. If I shuck and jive for this audience, then this audience will give me money. Um, and that is where we get, I think, the majority of black uh, of like publicly 
conservative black people um, like a Clint, Kim Klasik who ran who had no chance of winning in her race a couple of years ago. But she's been visibly a pundit and making money off of that grift since she did that. Like it is a hustle, you know, that you can do because people will pay for it. Yeah. One thing that I, I thought was interesting in your analysis, too, is you were talking about the distinction between black conservatives who are like Candace, primarily performing for a white audience and black conservatives who are performing for a black audience. And frankly, some of those personalities you were discussing were people that I didn't have as much knowledge of. Could you talk a little bit about that piece, FD? Yeah. And so this is where we start getting, you know, further, further left than maybe chunks of your audience and, and you know, the, the general audience is really engaged with. What you find out if you do a historical analysis of black political movements is that black people um, historically have been more akin and aligned with far left ideology, socialism um, and and going back. Uh, this is um, MLK. Malcolm X was going in this direction before he died. Baird Rustin, W.E.B. E. Du Bois, um, A. Philip Randolph. They were all socialists at different times. And then when you look at surveys of black, when you look at black uh, culture and trying to survive a racist, white supremacist, capitalist society, we're developing informal networks of of mutual aid, um, developing collectivist uh, identities and and cultural uh, networks to support each other. And then you actually do direct surveys and you see that black people tend to be aligned with more socialist policies, policies that are further left than the Democrats. And so. I lost my, I lost a train of thought for your question. I was, I was asking about, asking about uh, black conservatives who are performing more for a black audience than a white audience. Right, right. And so what happens, um, shout out to, uh, Pascal, uh, Robert from the, uh, this is revolution podcast. He talked, he calls it, uh, the 50 year counter revolution, which is as this, this has been there the whole time. And then, as we get into like a modern media era, a modern media landscape, you start to see an investment in certain images of blackness, black wealth, black exceptionalism, black excellence, et cetera. There's a the really a really interesting um, video you can still find on YouTube called Selling to the Negro. And it was made by the founder of Jet Magazine, which is a very historically famous magazine for um, African-Americans. And basically what you start to see is capitalism try to kind of claim some of this history, some of this legacy and create mm. a conflict. And so there is where you start to see a rise in black conservatism that doesn't look like or sound like Jesse Lee Peterson or Candace Owens. Um, but it, it, it ends up in the same overall place in terms of reifying and supporting a system that marginalizes the majority of black people. And that's where you yeah. get your Bill Cosby, um, Oprah, uh, Tyler Perry, lately, sadly, to my chagrin, Killer Mike, um, where they're, they're repeating the core of their political ideology is not all that different than your typical moderate Republican. But because it's dressed in this black aesthetic, and it's coming from people who are in community with us, whom, whose judgment we trust. We are less critical of it. And it allows for it. What it ends up really doing is keeping uh, black people beholden to the Democratic Party instead of organizing and moving further left than even the Democrats are willing to go. So in the categories of black conservatism, the distraction, I think a great example you use for that one is Louis Farrakhan. And the point that stuck with me is that he has this aesthetic 
of really challenging power um, and going after elites. But functionally, the energy is sort of redirected in a way that doesn't lead to organizing, doesn't lead to materially improving lives. It's sort of like the veneer of a radical politics. But in reality, it actually is backs the status quo. That was uh, Farcon, the distraction. Then you had the double agent like you alluded to there, Bill Cosby. And then you had the black capitalist, Jay-Z. So talk a little bit about um, the differences between between the three of those, because I think that's really interesting. Right. So basically, the the argument I was presenting is that black people have uh, limited their political imagination based around the images and, and leaders that have been presented to us uh, through the media, through through our own cultural uh, affinities for certain images and people. Um, and that when you kind of analyze what these folks are doing, they all kind of, you know, hand wave a certain radical aesthetic, a certain politic of, of uplifting black people. But when you kind of break down the particulars of what they're doing, at most, it will help a, a certain amount of black people, black people with access to capital, with access to certain opportunities, um, et cetera, and will placate and say, all right, once we get ours, we're going to take care of y'all. We're going to take care of the community. We're going to take care of the block, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that part never actually comes to fruition. Um, so you have Farrakhan and Farrakhan is in the same vein. I, I picked on him in particular, even though he's probably less prominent now than he was when I was a, uh, a kid because um, Farrakhan has the aesthetics and he talks a good game and he is, is and has been genuinely scary to the status quo for some concerning reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but when you, you look at Farrakhan's, um, rhetoric, it's very much a black excellence, black capitalist rhetoric. We need to build our own financial systems and institutions. But when you break down like the actual feasibility and logistics of building black owned financial systems and institutions, that, that's a, really a dead end. Like logistically, the numbers don't add up. Um, and this is something that's well known throughout, you know, that's, this is something that's well known and well documented, but it sounds good and it will allow for a handful of black folks to get to that spot. Then you get to Cosby and Cosby really should be grouped with, um, you know, again, uh, Tyler Perry, Oprah, um, a lot of, uh, probably, uh, boomer to Gen X, uh, black media icons who present this, this veneer of like exceptionalism. And in doing that, always kind of denigrates uh, the black lumpen proletariat, the black proletariat, black working class people who must first, you know, cut their hair, name their kids certain things um, and participate in certain cultural, uh, you know, um, cultural traditions before they can actually be uplifted. And you'll hear them you know, argue about pulling their pants up. When a person gets shot by the police, their first response is, well, what were they doing? What were they involved in? They don't think about why it's not okay for police to be a roaming death squad for petty crime. Um, and and then we when we get to Jay-Z, we're talking about black capitalism, which is kind of like the core thing. It's we, the, the, the political imagination that gets the most uh, 
energy and attention from the media is always going to be black people in suits, black people getting money, black people who have made it against all odds, et cetera. And it's often used as a cudgel to say, if this person can do it, black man, black child, black girl, why can't you? Instead of saying, how did this person do it? You know, like 50% of black billionaires in America are entertainers. You know, they, they got it through entertainment. Um, I, I, that don't, Quote me on that 50 percent, but like a large majority of black billionaires come from the entertainment world. Um, so how did they do it? Why is that not uh, replicatable? And where is this money coming from? You know, when Kanye West became a billionaire, he didn't become a billionaire off selling records. He didn't become a billionaire off of starting his own business or land or real estate or energy. He became a billionaire because he signed a billion dollar contract with Adidas. And like that mm-hmm. is how that that and they they always leave that part out. Um, and so what this does is it kind of keeps the black political imagination stagnant in America. It makes it so further left, even just going toward the Bernie Sanders side of, of, of further left is seen as extreme and silly and not of our traditions. But when you go and you examine those traditions, you say, well, they, they, this actually aligns perfectly. Why didn't I know this? You know, and I say, I'm not saying that about me personally. Part of what made me break this video is because I grew up in what I assumed was a tradition of of, of relatively radical black uh, ideology and, and, and cultural accoutrements. And when I stepped outside of that like tradition and got back into academia and then stepped outside of academia and got into the parts of, ac- of the, the, the uh, tr- historical and, and, and intellectual traditions of Pan-African or, you know, radical black thought, black power thought, you start to see, oh, this stuff was here the whole time, but we didn't, we weren't really given access to it, you know, and I think that's very purposeful. Talk a little bit about, you mentioned Bernie there. What is your analysis of why he consistently struggled specifically with older black voters? And I think sort of generally black voters in the South, and there seemed to be a real generational divide there because obviously he did very well with, um, younger black voters, especially college educated, younger black voters. What did you, where do you think that that all comes from? So I can say this as a person who did not support Bernie in 2016, that a lot of it stemmed from a lack of imagination. It it stemmed from exactly what I, like when I made this video, this video was for my 2016 self. Um, The, uh, the, those like core elements that I spoke about in the second video, the distraction, capitalist, et cetera, um, have controlled the black political imagination um, for the for the greater part of the last 40, 50 years. And they've kind of um, uh, the term, uh, I can't remember the paper it comes from, but the PMC, the uh, professional managerial class, like that class in among black people has probably a more power within the, those spaces than uh, everyone else, than, than, than like in other racial ethnic demographics. Um, uh, again, quoting, uh, my boy Pascal, he talked about how Jim Clyburn has the uh, in his Rolodex every black Greek letter organization of which I'm a part of, every HBCU um, dean and like uh, uh, student organization again of which I'm a part of, um, every major black church in the South. Like these are the power centers of black political and economic uh, power uh, in the South and you know probably nationwide. And those are, you know, those are your older and more uh, regular voters. 
Um, those are people that control purse strings and access to economic capital. And so if he comes out and says, yeah, this Bernie thing is cool and all, but we're rolling with Joe Biden or rolling with uh, Hillary Clinton. It's not such a stretch to be like, well, you know, we, we've done that before. It's the devil we do versus the devil we don't. And we're so I feel like the experience is uh, it, it's hard to imagine a political reality where something like the 94 crime bill does not happen. You know, that it's hard to imagine a political reality where defund the police and Black Lives Matter don't get watered down into what we're seeing today. It's like that just seems like the status quo. And so if I, if I if I have to vote for, you know, Joe Biden over a more leftist, uh, well, we don't have anybody running against them. But like if so in 2028, in 2028, when they put out, you know, some, you know, neoliberal Democratic candidate uh, and and we don't have another leftist candidate of value. It's going to be a matter of just familiarity. Um, you know, it doesn't help that uh, uh, Sanders definitely had what, what I call the, the stench of white leftists on him. Um, <laughs> a very uh, bad habit of like overspeaking, of not reading the room and of not. Like there's a there's a, you know, and, I, and I've been in this space enough to kind of have seen it where it's like, you know, you have these these well-wishing white leftists, they pop up and they have the good ideas and they feel entitled to a space and a, an audience of, of black people without having done the work of, of building trust and uh, inroads to those conversations and communities. So he he failed in that regard. But the real gist of it came down to. Uh, he was working against a machine that he really didn't have uh, the weapons or tools to break down. So um, I also really liked your video on Obama. It was really interesting to get your perspective on that. From my perspective, I remember when he got elected, there was this massive feeling of hope that we're going to get out of the Iraq war. We're going to get out of the, out of the Afghanistan war. We're going to have basically uh, the new iteration of FDR who's going to take on a corrupt system. And then as time goes by, you get the sense he's more like a new Bill Clinton and a lot less like an FDR. It's all tweaks around the edges. It's all neoliberal centrism. And there was a real disillusionment. In my case, by the time 2012 came around, I was already, you know, with the drone war and everything and the innocents dying, I was already like, okay, I don't like this. But it was very interesting to hear your perspective because you weaved in um, your thoughts from an identity perspective as well, how, you know, a lot of people thought this literally would never happen in America, that you'd never have a black man rise to the highest level of power. So you had to balance the feelings of like, wow, this is historic. This is amazing. This guy's like a once in a generation talent while also <clears throat> grappling with the, the, the policy outcomes, which were not really what you and many people were hoping for. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, that was a tough one. I almost like I was, I, Almost didn't come up with another video after those, especially because those videos ran into a lot of YouTube trouble um, because I just didn't feel good uh, about the videos because it was just a thing I, I wasn't it was impossible for me to feel good about. I don't have good feelings around the conflict of what Obama represents, as you just pointed out. I was a huge Obama fan um in 08 and uh, weeped openly when he won, cried in front of, I was a teacher at the time, cried in front of my students and just cheerleaded the the essence of what 
that meant to have to witness in my lifetime, which I never expected a black man rise to the highest positions of power um, in, in the West and in the United States, which is just like it, it, even as I'm talking about it, it still doesn't make sense. Like, I don't think it could happen again. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Certainly feels uh, like it. Yeah. Right. Like, I feel like we're, we're further behind than we were before he got elected in a weird way. Um, on the flip side, it was also, like you said, a loss of innocence. Like when he started showing signs of like not quite getting it and not quite being all that interested in any type of like, you know, upheaval or change. It was very moderate. It was, I think, um, different analyses on his presidency put him closer to Reagan than Clinton, you know? Um, and, and once that settles in, it becomes this serious conflict because the whole time he's doing this, he's also being attacked by the right in a way that like, I knew it would be some, like I, I still didn't, I don't think anybody imagined they would be that openly racist towards the president of the United States. Right. So you're kind of in a, 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 a rock and a hard place. I think a lot of black Americans found themselves in a rock and a hard place where there's a, the the way that blackness is consumed in the media is like inherently toxic. Even if you're doing, even if you're being like presented as like this ideal and being celebrated in the media, it's still like often ends up. You, so like here's FD signifier. He's so great. He's a great black leftist and da, 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 da. And it will be used as a cudgel for other black political figures on YouTube. Like, why aren't you more like FD signifier? He's a, so mm-hmm. like, that's what was happening with Obama, where you want to defend him because you don't want him to be used as a cudgel to denigrate uh black political anything going forward. But you also are like, hey, dude, this is not what we, you know, voted for you for. This is not what we were at. We weren't looking. We weren't interested in drone strikes. That's not that wasn't part of the, the equation. Um and so when and you're left with, like you said, a loss of innocence. And I think that is a turning point for a lot of like, I don't think um, Sanders has the 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 youth black youth movement that he has, if not for the fact that a lot of young black people were so disillusioned with Obama and mm. millennials right now, I think are we're probably I think so many millennials, old age millennials are pointing to the Obama presidency as when they started moving further left. And if I'm not mistaken, there's like a lot of data that uh, presents that millennials, unlike Xers and and boomers, are not moving right as they get older. I'll be 41 next month and I'm becoming further left as I get older. Yeah. And so I think Obama's a big part of that because it was like this was this was neoliberalism's capitalism shot to say, hey, here's how it could work for you, young millennium. And it didn't work at all. So we're like, okay, fuck the whole system. And, you know, we're moving, we're moving on. How much is you were mentioning um, limiting political imagination and how much is Obama's role now to basically like swoop in at key moments to continue to limit political imagination, not just for black Americans, but effectively for all Americans, because in a sense now his legacy is kind of at stake. So if you did have a Bernie Sanders presidency and he did by some miracle get Medicare for all through then, you know, Obamacare really pales in comparison. So he's very invested, and you see this in his memoirs and in the interviews he does now. He's very invested in making the case that what he accomplished was the absolute outer limit of what was possible at the time. 
And that seems to be what he invests, primarily invests his energy in these days is making sure that, you know, things stay nice and squarely where he was comfortable and where he was willing to push them and not go any further. Yeah, I think that's completely what he's doing and what he's become. And it's it's interesting. There's a dynamic, um, I think, within, you know, some black black spaces where you just have you have your uncles, you know, and like you respect your uncles, you love your uncles. And when your uncles start talking about a particular topic, you ignore your uncles. And that's where Obama is at this point. You know, like we're going to let Obama come through and smile <laughs> and and play basketball and, and good vibes and and still like, you know, uh, I got his T-shirt and I went to the to the to the museum with my kids. But like as soon as he starts talking politics, I'm like, all right, thank thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, the, the legacy speaks for itself, unfortunately. Um, and there's. He can he can do better by acknowledging the limitations of of his presidency and his political movement, uh, but he hasn't. He is a he is a liberal Democrat through and through, kind of trying to as as Kyle just pointed, like massage the outer outer limits of the the system we have now to make it a little more amenable to a handful of people. But what what black people are interested in and desire is change like genuine change and uh upheaval not reform not alterations but like dynamic uh paradigm shifts in our social systems in our healthcare in 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 um policing etc and he wasn't about that you know what I'm saying he had a handful of you know cool little moments but he wasn't about that and none of you know most of the democratic party isn't about that and while you know I'm not I am not the uh, anti-vote guy, right? I'll be honest about that. I'm still going to vote. I vote with the same energy that I like wash my hands after I use the bathroom. It's the least you could do, right? It doesn't take much energy. But I am like the goal of those videos was to get black folks to re-engage with those political traditions of organizing and direct action and um, education around the, the this history and these policies and inject that into the mainstream. And even if we don't have you know, the glorious anarcho-syndicalist society that some of my younger peers are, 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 are seeking out. We're going to actually affect real change by doing that, not by getting behind, you know, uh, you know, getting too far behind or too invested in mainstream electoral politics. Yeah. So you've had, go ahead, Crystal. You've had an interesting reversal now because um, under Obama, obviously, he picks Joe Biden and sort of explicitly picks Joe Biden because he thinks it'll make white people come more comfortable. Then you get Joe Biden as the nominee and he picks Kamala Harris, supposedly as a sop to black Americans, although it's not like she did particularly well with black Americans in her primary run. So I'm not sure why they really thought that that would be a thing. But I'm curious your perspective on her ascent to the vice presidency and the way that she is viewed, you know, not that the black community is not a monolith, but that she's viewed by black Americans. Yeah. I I, I don't want to talk a ton about Kamala because there's, so there's her politics and her political history, which is problematic. Um, then there's like uh, other like more fringe um, arguments about her, her um, ethnicity, uh, that have emerged over the years, which I don't even want to give too much air to. And then there's that uh, undercurrent of misogyny and misogynoir that makes it difficult. So she becomes a, a person that's difficult to critique uh, publicly <laughs> because 
whatever I say here will be picked up by some other group and seem like, see, you know, like this thing that I don't really believe being validated by my words. But I will say that I, I, um, what I get and what I feel like I'm seeing is a, is a severe disappointment. Um, even from like mainstream, you know, uh, you know, more moderate black Democrat, you know, types that I went to school with and still am in community with. They're all kind of like, I don't know what, what we got, what Kamala is doing. She, she doesn't, she hasn't done much of anything. Like there's, there's, there's really, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> there's really not a lot to be impressed by. And almost every time she's, I feel like they're hiding her at this point. Um, and if they're not hiding her, it, it's, it's just, I don't know what's going on with them. It just doesn't look good. And I imagine and would have hoped for, even if I wasn't going to be a fan of her, you know, actual politics um, uh, or I should say her political history, because her her run as a senator, from from what I understand, was about as progressive as, you know, senators got, to be honest. But like she just hasn't availed herself well in the position. And so it just kind of feels like a a, a, a nothing burger, a wasted opportunity, you know? Yeah, I mean, they're, I feel like they're stuck in that just Democratic Party mold and mindset. You know, she's called Top Cop Kamala. She was the prosecutor in California. And like you said, she has a long track record of like, this is not what the base wants. This is not the future of the party. She was very famously as late as, what was it, 2014, 2015, still against legalizing weed. She cracked down hard on truancy, very big on criminalization. So it's like they're stuck in, again, that Bill Clinton mindset of like neoliberal politics agree with the right as much as possible to try to appear moderate and that just doesn't right. work anymore um yeah. so let me ask you this because this is something that i've thought a lot about and i'm curious what you think of it when you look at the history of malcolm x and dr martin luther king jr you see this hijacking attempt by basically everybody involved in the conversation, but the right, even at this point, tries to act like, well, MLK would have been a Republican. Yeah. And <laughs> what they do, I know it's hilarious. What they do is they try to, I mean, they just straight up lie sometimes, but they'll also point to like Malcolm X and MLK being a little more conservative on social issues as like evidence to those ends. But at the same time, as you were alluding to previously, there's, they ignore the fact that MLK was on the record as a socialist. He was on the record as saying, you know, my government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, basically calling the U.S. government terrorists. Right. He was in favor of universal health care. He called himself a democratic socialist. You go down they, the list. They killed him when he was coming to March, uh, to March getting ready to mark, march on Washington again for reparations. Like that yes. is when he was murdered. Um, uh, they, you know, that was when he was murdered or assassinated, I should say. So I don't get in trouble. Um, yeah, like it's it's. It's what's happened. It, it, this is tied into like the, you know, the overabundance of stories about, you know, black people, especially black men becoming conservative is the from what I like. I don't think anybody actually agrees with uh, right wing policies at this point, like not even the right wing <laughs> agrees with smaller government, lower taxes for the rich, all that crap, like barely anybody's with that anymore. All they have are multiple witch hunts on queer people, trans people, immigrants, black uh, critical race theory, et cetera. And so 
what they're trying to appeal to are these um these social issues they're trying to appeal to um an appeal to tradition and appeal to, you know, a normative ideologies of gender, patriarchy, and of course, white supremacy, because that's all they have in terms of policy. And as long as people are emotionally invested in those identity politics, then they have a, a foot in the door. The flip side is the Democrats aren't that different in terms of, so the Democrats don't want, you know, want larger government, but they still aren't going to like make that larger government actually effective for the vast majority of people. It's just going to be a larger government to hand over money to, you know, corporate interest and, you know, uh, for people to destroy the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so what happens is you have people struggling for survival. And when that's happening, the, the strong, the strong man ideology, um, the, the concept of patriarchy and family traditions, provides a sense of, well, that worked before. So we can appeal to that. That still is value. The, or, or better yet, all this change is scary and it's too much too soon. And I'm being asked to, to, to alter the way I refer to people's pronouns and, and to uh, think about, you know, trans people in the bathroom with me, even though that's been happening since like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and, and, because that's been happening since the 1950s, there is a through line between, you know, the way that um, uh, black, you know, people saw gender and marriage in the 50s. It's still there so they can make that through line and try to make that argument, even though Bayard Rustin, uh, uh, Martin Luther King's right hand man, was openly gay, even though um, James Baldwin, one of the most uh, prominent figures of the time, was openly gay. Uh, so was, were there elements of, you know, homophobia and misogyny, et cetera, inherent in those movements? Definitely. Definitely. It doesn't change the, all it, all that does is, is tell us how we need to adjust for modern sensibilities around, uh, gender equality and, and, and queer rights, et cetera, versus saying we're going to reject the entire ideology, which is clearly salient, um, as a, as a, as a response. But, you know, that's all they have to argue with. So the argument um, that is made in these, like, you know, black voters are going to start voting Republican, black men in particular, they point usually to cultural issues, right? All it's right. like they tend to be more church going, tend to be more religious, maybe tend to be more conservative on abortion, possibly tend to be more conservative on um, LGBTQ issues. You know, help us understand, like, sort of fact from fiction on that, basically. It's all bullshit. <laughs> when, when it comes down all to it, there you go. It's, all, it's mostly all fiction. So, like, so I, I think there are there is uh, data that indicates that black people are more church going, but black church is different. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Black church is probably closer to, uh, you know, it's, it's more community based. Uh, there's been gay uh, people in black churches forever. Um, uh, the uh the black family and black gender dynamics have always been different the the concept of gender as it's presented in like americana cultural aesthetics has never really was never really meant for black people and so even like black gender uh academics on opposite sides of like certain ideologies agree that this idea that black men 
um, are all like hyper patriarchal and hyper toxically masculine is really a racist lie about what's actually been happening in black communities. Um, black women have always worked and they've always worked outside the house. Um, uh, black men and black women are, are still marrying each other, um, uh, by a wide margin. But the cameras focus on the stories of, of, uh, you know, uh, they focus on uh, Umar Johnson uh, saying ridiculous things about Spider-Man and his white girlfriend in the cartoon. The cameras hyper focus on Kanye West's uh, anti-Semitic um, world talk show tour he did last year. Um, the media hyper focuses on that and doesn't actually spend any time looking at the data, looking at the history, doing any type of ethnographic study on what black people are actually doing. The fact is we've never been allowed to participate in the, the traditional conservative Americana reality um, at a wide scale in this country. Whenever we've gotten even close to that, white terrorist mobs have burned down our neighborhoods and or white public policy has destroyed our neighborhoods with highways and over policing and redistricting and black and uh, redlining. So they will say that and, and loud voices will come out and, and speak to that being true and, 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 and uh, support those I ideas, but within black communities, and I'm not saying that there's not homophobia or, or queer phobia or misogyny or anything like that in black spaces, but it reflects the same. It reflects the same uh, as in any, you know, uh, gender, cultural, ethnic population in America. It is not more than uh, what we see anywhere else. The idea of black men going right wing, the way I view it, is, is almost like it's an attempt to wish it into existence. It's sort of like a marketing scheme. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, look at this thing that's happening. Don't you want to hop on board with this thing that's happening? But, you know, when you look at the numbers, I don't know if there's a single election where um, less than 90% of the black vote went to uh, the Democrat over the Republican. I mean, they made a big deal about Trump getting more. What was it, Chris? The Latino votes? Yeah. And he was, and it was still what? He got like 3%, 3% to 4% or something? Yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's always these margins. And that's a really like I like the way you put it, that they're trying to will it into existence, which is probably why there's so much coverage, because they're hoping that the media coverage will like create um a wave based solely on like if they you know, I don't know, Michael Jordan, uh eating McDonald's once upon a time, you know, made kids love happy meals. Like I guess that it's it's really disrespectful. <laughs> it's really just right. a complete it's it's so offensive in terms of like how people see black political imagination and like our intelligence. The reality is there will always be a certain percentage of black men um, who are attracted to, you know, patriarchy or attracted to conservative ideology and uh, a smaller percentage of black women because they get much less out of the deal. Mo I would I would argue that most of the black conservative women are probably married to black conservative men. And it is probably church based to an extent. But the the thing is, uh, rest of us know better. And even those, those conservative black men who, who are aligned politically or at least ideologically with the Bill Cosby on Oprah or who are hyper capitalists, they've been in boardrooms with all, they've been in offices with all white people. They've been in these conservative white spaces and they've been treated 
as those spaces tend to treat black people, no matter your hair, no matter your name, no matter who you say you vote for, no matter how respectable and polite you are, the energy does not change. So at the end of the day, those people end up returning to communities that are accept- accepting and nurturing and supportive of who they are. So you will never get a large swell of black men engaging in the in 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 politics uh, for the right wing. It just won't happen. And people always ask me, well, what if Republicans stop being racist? What if pigs fly? What if hell freezes over? Like it's, it's, that's, that is their political agenda right now. If Republicans stop being racist, then I then we've probably solved a lot of other problems. And sure, let's see what happens then. But you know, that's that's just not a real thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, Southern strategy, right? It's a literally like a matter of historical record that they embrace the Southern strategy and they wanted to break off the formerly racist Democrats, the Dixiecrats. They said, let's go after them. Let's go after Southern white people and openly racist. That was the well, whole Well, because if your analysis isn't that, you know, the problem for people and the, the struggle for people is like corporate power and these larger structures, you have to have another analysis of what the problem is. And it always right. collapses down to like, let's scapegoat this or that group of people. Yeah, personal responsibility, bootstraps, politics, the welfare state. Yeah, it's 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 always going to come back to that. And only a handful of black folks, the same, a, a small percentage every year since the 70s, since the Southern strategy have yeah. fell for that. Like we're talking about 50, 60 years of voting data that shows that it has never went. It was, it was a, it was a pinch higher with Trump. Uh, or oh, I'm sorry, a pinch. It was like way higher uh, under Obama. We had like 99% black vote. And then like Trump got like a pinch more of a black vote than, than ever. But like other than that, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. not happening, you know? Go ahead, my, la- my last question for you, FD, is just, you know, do you um, do you feel hopeful uh, about, you know, putting electoral politics aside? Like one thing we've tracked really closely is some of the grassroots labor movements, you know, Amazon, Starbucks, young people, incredibly diverse faces that are leading this movement that, you know, look a lot different oftentimes than the sort of like classic idea of what a union man or woman looks like. Um, does that give you hope? Are there other things you see broadly in our uh, social, cultural, political life that are exciting to you? Definitely. I have a I have a ton of hope. Um, it's, it's funny because I'm I'm older than most. Well, not most of my audience. My audience actually skews relatively older. Um, but like a lot of the peers I have in the in the left tube, leftist YouTube space, um, I, I came in not even wanting to be all that political in my content. And once I started seeing like the, the money I can make off YouTube, I was like, Oh, like ethically, I'm just not comfortable. Um, just being up here talking about nonsense when there's like real stuff going on and I'm getting paid. Like I gotta, I gotta balance that out somehow. But as I started engaging the community and like talking to younger people who are at the forefront of these struggles, I started getting really excited. Like, yo, these little motherfuckers are really handling their shit. They're way better than we were at our age because we because we we still had like I was in high school under the Clinton years. So I came out of high school like, yeah, neoliberalism. What the fuck? Let's go. <laughs> you know, dot com bubble, uh, all the uh, gentrification, all that stuff, because it, it looked everything looked gravy and it didn't start breaking down until like, you know, going into the Bush years. And then you think it's going to change after the Obama years. And you realize it's it's definitely not. So I was very much what they call doomer pilled, right? 
I'd, I'd had my house. I had my family. I'm doing OK, but I don't know how anything else is going to change. So I'm just going to keep my head down and mind my business. And then you see the youth mobilizing. And you see, like you said, uh, Amazon unionizing. You see strikes, even though strikes are being killed by our federal government in terms of like with the well, with the railroad strikers. But like that's happening. Um, and the, the youth are seeing this and they're getting closer and closer to making some real noise. You see, um, a classic example of, of, uh, in, in Chicago mayor race, of a moderate Democrat, a moderate pro-police, pro-corporate Democrat being defeated by the smallest margins by a outright socialist candidate because the young people and the people who are getting ready to inherit the political power of this country are done with the bullshit. So I am extremely hopeful. Um, the, the boomers are dying. The, the Gen Xers are next. Um, <laughs> and the, and the millennials are, are about to be the moderates. You know, saying I am the moderate within my community because I'm an old guy with a, with a house and some kids, and I fucks with that. I can't eat me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you, if you got eat, eat the rich, and if you get to me, like just you know, uh, just you know, serve me with some good seasoning because I am very confident that the kids are getting ready to continue this work, and barring you know, uh, DeSantis, who I'm I personally am more scared of than Trump. That's um, interesting. Barring like a, you know, the massive, you know, we are dealing with massive power structures um, that have been working against these uh, politics for a uh, generation now. Um, barring them getting really, really aggressive, I don't think they can stop the what 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 the youth are bringing to the table. And we are probably going to be looking at some significant social and political change and environmental change uh, bef before my children are having their children. You know, that that was super uplifting. I just want to say, don't eat me, but you could tax me more. <laughs> I don't want to get eaten, but just tax me more. It's okay. more, than, more than happily pay the taxes. Um <laughs> So you mentioned there your non-political content. I just want to say your breakdown of the movie Baby Boy was phenomenal. Thank that, you, thank you. And that's, that's one of those probably movies. one of my favorite videos. It's like one of Great. my least performing videos. It's crazy. I know. I know. We know the <laughs> feeling of like, like I love um, this one. No, nope, nothing like happens with it. There's almost like an inverse relationship between the ones that you feel the best about and the ones that perform. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. true. But just listen, keep yeah. following whatever you feel like you want to talk about. Talk about it because there's whoever is watching, whatever number is, they are definitely appreciating it. And that was a phenomenal video. So I just wanted to say that. And then also, um, I wanted to ask you before we get out of here on like, there's this interesting new genre. Well, there's the manosphere. That's not interesting. It's just terrible, especially with how extreme they are with the Andrew Tates and the just pearly things and stuff like that. I'm not as interested in the manosphere stuff as I am in more like just that general like self-help type genre. Mm -hmm. So I'll admit that every now and then, depending on my mood, it really depends on my mood, but I'm kind of a sucker for like an inspirational type video. Like yeah. there's all these channels like Motivation Madness or whatever. And if I'm looking for a little pick-me-up or something, yeah, I'll go listen to a Kobe Bryant speech from 2012 where he's telling you to shut up and like bust your ass and work harder and all that stuff. Like every now and then I like to go down that rabbit hole. And I don't really have a problem with that sort of content as long as it doesn't come with a, an explicitly like right wing political ideology attached to it, where it's like, hey, if you just work hard, if you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, everything will work out for you and everything will work out for society. Because we know that's factually not true. We know we have to address the systems. We know we have to redistribute wealth. We know we need a better social safety net. So 
do you agree with me that the, the self-help stuff is okay as long as it's not like attached to a nefarious political agenda that basically disregards or overrides or outright lies about the fact that really systemic change is needed while you could also sort of improve on yourself. Yeah. And that's the, Oh, that's so fucking frustrating. Um, how, uh, left wing, um, opinions on this stuff are presented because people want to present it. Uh, they want to kind of, um, straw man, uh, left wing structural analysis being the, um, let's say the, the, the front lining of that on the left with us not believing that people can do anything for themselves. Uh, they, they want to make it seem like that's what we believe. And all we're really trying to do is raise the critical, um, the critical faculties of people so that we don't get self help that easily lends itself to right wing ideology and then reification of, of oppressive social systems. Um, I, uh, I love hip hop, right? Hip hop has all kinds of problems. If you, if you want to sit down and be critical of hip hop's, you know, um, hell, uh, some of the biggest rappers I criticize in my videos for their politics. Um, the, the, you know, homophobia in hip hop, uh, uh, misogyny in hip hop, all that's there. But like hip hop doesn't cause those things, right? And so neither does self help. Self help doesn't cause those things. So what we want to do is raise our critical engagement with this content and entertainment and media so that we can enjoy the things that we appreciate about them and be critical of the possible outcomes of what that rhetoric can lend itself to. So I'm doing a video on anime uh, in August and like uh, in July and anime is this huge medium with uh, and I'm arguing about all the awesome things that anime can say for young boys and men. And I give some motivational self-help elements in it, but like I'm also engaging with the critical like things that it presents at the same time. And so all I want from, I don't know, your Gary V's and you know, your dopamine detox guy mm -hmm. is not for them to like add a structural analysis to their, you know, to their content, but to lay off the, you know, you're lazy and lazy people deserve nothing elements. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? Just reel it in like 20, 30%, keep people motivated and don't add that element to it. And you can probably get the same thing. But right. the thing that we have to engage with is that the people that get popular like an Andrew Tate, um, it's because they have extra. And so one thing I haven't, I haven't said this word the whole time on here, which I'm like shocked. Algorithms reward extreme opinions and divisiveness. And what we have, to, what we, our job is, even as we don't completely align politically or ideologically, whatever, is at least creating, uh, lifting the critical faculties of our audience. Um, and when you don't do that, you end up with an Andrew Tate. You end up with people that are completely ridiculous on on the on the face of things, but can get away with murder because they make, you know, 15 year old boys feel good about their breakup, you know, or whatever other, you know, crap is going on. But you know, that's a whole nother set of videos. Yeah, I can't. Uh, final thing, I can't help but bite on this. Uh, you mentioned that you fear DeSantis more than Trump. Why is that? Because because DeSantis seems serious. Like Trump's going to get in and people are going to use him to further fascist agendas in America. Right. Which is what he did in 2016. And that's unfortunate. But DeSantis is going to lead 
fascist agendas. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like, it's kind of like either way, it's a bad thing overall, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but Trump is incompetent. Trump is an, a buffoon. <coughs> and so I'd rather have, if I have to choose between a buffoon who is a useful tool for evil <coughs> or like an evil genius, I'm going to go with the buffoon because I, I feel like DeSantis would know how, like what he's done in Florida is scary. Yeah. yeah. It's scary how he's, he's completely turned Florida into like this gulag at this point. Um, and like the things he's been able to, if it's not for freaking the evil Disney corporation, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like that's how bad DeSantis is that we have to root for an evil corporation to defeat him. Uh, it's you an ugly, it's so, an ugly like, landscape. Yeah. Right. I yeah. would so, say, I do feel like DeSantis upped his uh, buffoon quotient with his Twitter launch disaster. Oh, yeah. So yeah. perhaps that gives you a little more. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I, we'll I think you're right that DeSantis, like, he's most known for these pretty openly authoritarian laws in Florida. And the, the actual, actually, the courts have slapped down some of them for being against yeah, the First right. Amendment. Like, that's how authoritarian a lot of this stuff is. So I agree with you on that front. I actually, I've gone back and forth on this question as to who I think is worse and at least at the moment where I've landed is that I actually fear Trump just a little bit more for the simple reason that we know what happens when he loses an election. He's going to be like, I didn't lose it. And he tries to use every avenue available to overturn it. Whereas my instinct at the moment, and I could definitely be wrong and eat crow on this, but my instinct at the moment is that I kind of think DeSantis would be a little more like Jeb Bush or George W. Bush if he loses and just be like, peace, I'm gone. Possibly. Actually, George Bush is a bad example because he stole the election from Gore. So I right. take that back. Not just- right. That's, that's exactly what I was going to go to. Imagine right. if Trump was competent. You see right. what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah like, like DeSantis would inherit the same political reality of, of this, like, Overton window breaking far right fringe um, culture that we are dealing with in America. He would inherit that same source of power, but then be competent enough to wield it. And that's the scary that. So I'm like, again, I am generally check. I'm a, I'm a vote when, when voting day comes and I'm not about to pay attention in between too much myself. Right. Um, but I know, I, I know enough to know that I, I would rather like fight a, a imbecile than a person that actually knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm scared of like, if, if January 6th, but also competent, you mm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. January 6th, yeah. but also not you like yeah. the other thing. The other thing I would say, though, is um, the normal laws of political gravity seem to apply to Ron DeSantis in a way they don't to Trump. And that's, that's Trump the just thing, ignores you know, it. I mean, that's <laughs> like, whatever. That's, that's the thing about Trump that's been so uh, scary at times and hard to deal with is like just the normal rules, the normal things that would bring someone down and make them, you know, so you never hear from them again. Like it just doesn't apply to him. DeSantis seems to be having to play by like the normal rules of politics. I don't think yeah. he could survive the it's same charisma. things that Trump has survived. Yeah, he doesn't have. It's that. all charisma. Yeah, it comes he down to charisma. He doesn't have that thing. Yeah, he's and not so, a game show host. Right. He's not a game show host. He doesn't have that X factor. You know, apparently there's reports right now he can't even like decide on how to say his own last name, which is kind of funny. Um, That's literally true. He keeps going. <laughs> he'll do one event and say DeSantis. I'm Ron DeSantis, and right. he'll do another one and say DeSantis. Right. And, wow. And Trump is going after him for that, too, because, of course, yeah. Trump is. He'll go after him for anything and so make it work. That's why I feel more concerned about another term of Trump, 
than DeSantis. On the other hand, to make your case, Trump is one and done if he gets reelected. DeSantis could be there for eight <laughs> oh, years. Oh, God, he could be Trump going to try to make himself emperor. <laughs> yeah, Trump will try to make himself emperor. I think the other thing I think about in is that you have to remember... So first off, like all this is bullshit to begin with. Just make sure I want to be very clear to whatever pocket of an audience is mad at me for even being here. That I'm I'm not jumping too far into electoralism. But the the thing I want to remind everybody of is that who could actually win? I don't think Trump. I I, I maybe I again I am relatively checked out. I don't think Trump has a chance of winning because I don't think he's going to convince those white moderates in sub- suburbs in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, etc. I think they're done. I think they're not coming back around for Trump for yeah. a, a second round. They 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 said what they had to say in 2020 and uh, 2020. As bad as uh, Biden is on all these different levels, I don't think they're coming back for that. They don't give a fuck about trans people, black people, immigrants. They do not care about those people. They don't. They do so, care about abortion, though. They they and they care. DeS- well, go ahead. DeSant- uh, they do care about abortion, though. And DeSantis has, you know, he signed a six week abortion ban. He's made himself more extreme than Trump right. on the issue of abortion. So I, I I think you're right. I think DeSantis would be a more formidable candidate. But the case in is the not general, as yeah. yeah in the general. The case yeah. is not as clear cut to me as some people seem to think. Yeah. Now I'm with you on this one, FD. I mean, I don't think it's impossible for Trump to win again a general election, but I do think it's very, very unlikely because he does have that stench of like repulsive to normies. Like he's got his cult, but right. normies and moderates are just like, eh, yeah. just a little yeah, too, far, a little too much. Yeah, I think enough. versus Biden, DeSantis, if you take your average 35 year old middle, not in middle America, suburban, exurban uh, American who is not, does not care that trans people are being persecuted and trying to be eliminated from society, does not care at all about and would prefer critical race theory not be taught because it makes them feel bad. Like all of those extreme authoritarian things, I don't think that. So the abortion thing is true. That might scare them a little bit, but I just don't know if it scares them enough that what they're scared of is Trump, Trump's buffoonery. It embarrasses them to an extent. I think it's a, a, a it's a weird reversal of identity politics, mm. um, you know, is what I think they is feel, happening. They feel he reflects poorly yeah. on the race. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think so. I think to an extent for those who are moderate. Right. Like you can't hide racism when Trump is in the office. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Correct. Correct. That's true. All right. FD, this was a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Plug your stuff. Tell everybody where they can find you. Um, you can find me on YouTube at FD Signifier. You can also find, uh, that is where I put my more, um, high quality, you know, long form video essays around a variety of topics. New one should be coming out on the 12th about a obscure rapper that people probably have forgotten, but a lot of people shouldn't forget. Um, and then I also have the Signified B-Size channel, which is where I do a mixture of like heavy, hard hitting political content and like, abject buffoonery and, and nonsense <laughs> as well. Um, so it is, I try to like keep it balanced there. Um, and uh, you can also find me on Nebula where you can get uncut um, extended versions of my content that is are hard to get through YouTube um, copyright and censorship, um, uh, uh, you know, filters. So, yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This was a really great conversation. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. All right. That was FD Signifier. Crystal, thoughts? Um, super fun to engage with him on a variety of topics. I actually really enjoyed that part of the uh, Trump-DeSantis debate. Um, I still think I fear Trump more than DeSantis, though, on balance, just because he does have that like po- weird political Teflon Don thing going on, and DeSantis just doesn't have that same skill. So there are three positions in this debate. Number one, Trump is worse. Number two, DeSantis is worse. Number three, they're equally bad. Yeah, I I have at one time or another had every one of those positions. (laughs) It all depends on what's in the news. It all depends on what is emphasized in my mind. And again, at the moment, he made a good case, but he just still didn't talk me out of like. I sort of think I undervalued or understated just how big of a deal January 6th was because there was this liberal reaction to it, which was so over the top and sort of goofy that it almost made me kind of be like, okay, it wasn't close to working. So let's relax. Right. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, over 60 court cases trying to throw out the results of the election reporting internally where, you know, they basically talked about how he was this close to invoking martial law and seizing the voting machines it literally the fact that we didn't have an outright coup is thanks to a couple of random lawyers who were working in the Trump White House who had to argue with people like Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell to their face and be like, you're fucking idiots. You lost every case. You don't know what you're talking about. And the fact that Trump happened to be more swayed by them in that exact moment, like it really hinged on these very minor moments that people really don't appreciate that it could have been a yeah. hell of a lot worse even than it was. And so we are we like we know. Listen, Crystal, there is I, I hate to say this. You already know this, though. There is no good ending to what's going to come. If Donald Trump wins the primary and wins the presidency, horrible. If he wins the primary and loses the presidency, he's going to say he won. If he loses the primary, he's going to say he won, (laughs) right? But if if he loses the primary, I guess the best case scenario is if he loses the primary to DeSantis or something, and then he runs third party and just destroys the Republicans. That'd be awesome. That'd be fun. Yeah. Like, that's very unlikely. Like, that's that's what, a 7% chance of all the possibilities there. So again, what I fear the most, I think on policy, it is mostly a wash between Trump and DeSantis. I think they almost totally agree on uh, social issues, even though at the moment, it seems like DeSantis is worse. But remember, Trump banned trans people from the military. He'll go wherever the winds take him. The winds right now are super far right. I think they're kind of equal on social issues. On economic issues, I think there's an argument that Trump is a little bit better um, because he does want to cut Medicare and Social Security. But overall, I think it's mostly a wash. But just the fact that Trump clearly does not believe in the peaceful transfer of power, and we know that, whereas with DeSantis, it's an open question. I think Trump is a little bit worse. On policy, I think DeSantis is probably worse overall, cause, just because I, I don't think Trump, like, he'll pay lip service to, you know, the, the transphobia and, like, all that stuff, but it's it's not where his heart is, you know. Where but he, ba- he banned trans is. people from the military. I agree it's not where his heart is. I think you're right yeah. about that, but he banned trans people from the military. Like, DeSantis he still acts in that way. Yeah, no, 100%. DeSantis has just shown a level of, like, creative malevolence on these issues that I don't see Trump having the same sort of like applying his same creativity to it. And on economic issues, I do think Trump is probably a little bit better than Ron DeSantis, who's like a classic Tea Party deficit hawk dude. I mean, it's just impossible. These are two men who have neither one of them really has any principles, right? It's just all ambition. It's all posturing. It's all it's all genuinely reactive. So it makes it impossible to really compare them on a policy basis. So, yeah, I think the fact that Trump 
even though he may have less executive competence, that he has so much political acumen, to me, makes him scarier. Now, where I disagree with both you and FD is on the possibility of Trump getting uh, back in the White House, even though I would I think Biden is the favorite. Um, you know, Trump didn't lose by all that much last time. And I'm seeing all these focus groups where they'll interview Biden voters. Um, New York Times just had one. They interviewed 11 Biden voters. And it's just a, it's a small sample. So you can't draw that much from it. But it's like, I think 10 of the 11 were like, I'm going to vote for Biden again. And the other one was like, I'm probably just not going to vote. And these are people who voted for Biden last time around. So on the one hand, you'd say, well, they're almost all largely with Biden, even though they're really disappointed in him because they despise Trump and they despise DeSantis. On the other hand, you're like, he kind of needs that 11th one to be there for him too. And there's some erosion there that could be enough people staying home, people being disappointed, people voting third party that make it possible for Trump to be able to succeed um, and overcome what were tiny margins in a handful of key states last time around. So my claim is, um, I don't think it's as strong as you're interpreting it. My Mm. claim is Trump is the least electable general election candidate for the Republicans. That's my claim. Uh, but that doesn't mean that at this point that I think he's, you know, he's guaranteed to lose to Biden. I think there was a time where I was making that claim because it was when yeah. Trump was bottoming out at like 25 percent favorability. Um, but right now, no, he can win. I just think still a DeSantis, even like a Nikki Haley would have a better chance against Biden than Trump would have against Biden. So that's my claim on that. Uh, and on the on the um, how competent he is argument, I actually have a disagreement with FD on that. Um, which is, yeah, he's a buffoon. Yeah, he's sloppy. Yeah, he shoots from the hip. Yeah, he's impulsive. But I think he was actually very politically effective because he got stuff done in a different way by like using the bully pulpit and screaming at people and getting them to fall in line. But at the end of the day, it still worked. He still got that 2017 tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. He still was able through executive authority alone to destroy the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was a government agency which returned $12 billion to Americans who were defrauded by big financial institutions. So I think if you actually look, I think Trump got a lot done. I think it's actually overstated how, uh, you know, Oh, he wasn't competent. I actually think in his own way, he kind of was competent. There's also, I think those are good points. There's also just a lot of um, decades of conservative think tank infrastructure that kicks into gear. So for example, the tax cut thing, like he didn't architect any of that. Paul Ryan and Heritage Foundation, whatever, they've been cooking this up over years. So all he has to do is say like, go do that thing. And they're ready with the policy written and to roll the whole thing out. So there's a lot of that that, you know, just kicks into gear when you have a Republican um, in office that overcomes some of his own personal, like, managerial incompetence. That's true. But I'd also just argue he's a fighter, right? So they draft the policy. He goes out there. He's like, this is the best bill anybody's ever seen ever. It's going to cut everybody's taxes. It's going to cut the middle class's taxes. And these terrible Democrats don't want to look out for working class people. Like, he knows how to sell it and use the bully pulpit. You know, anytime any Republican made a little bit of a peep against him, he would unleash the demons of hell on them, and then they would collapse and be out of politics within a year, right? And that's that's actually a unique kind of competence, you know? That's a unique kind of competence in politics. Politically, he is very competent and has usually good instincts. So, I mean, he was like a little bit weirdly online last yeah, it, election it waves. or whatever. It goes in waves. His, it does go yeah. in waves. It's not consistent, but he has way better political 
capability than Ron DeSantis. And ultimately, that does matter in terms of being able to get an agenda passed. So I guess that's that's what I think about that whole debate. But great talking to FD about that and a variety of other issues. We're both fans of his work. Indeed. All right, guys, you know the drill. You know the shameless plugs. Everybody uh, go on over to Substack. And if you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every interview and you get it a day early and you get our newsletters and everybody else uh, can sign up on Substack for free. And you get the audio version of the podcast emailed to you as soon as it drops, usually on Saturdays. And of course, much love to everybody who already supports this show. We appreciate you deeply. All right, guys, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Bye, guys. Bye.